This morning's reading is from Esther 2, verses 8 through 17. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is the word of the Lord. I've mentioned before that one of the great privileges I have as a pastor is that I get to very often sit in my office and hear the stories of people in our congregation. Many times the stories are being told to me because someone is going through a difficult time or facing a loss or trying to make a difficult decision. And the stories are told to try and help me understand them and what they're going through and some of the things that may have shaped them and kind of led to this moment or prepared them in some way for this moment. One one of the things I've learned over the years as I've listened to those stories is that many times the most important information is not found in the details that I'm told. Many times the most important information is found if I look closely at some of the things that aren't said. If I look at some of the gaps in the story or I ask questions about some of the things that seem to be quickly skipped over. Sometimes it's it's listening to the story in such a way as trying to hear what might be going on behind that story that provides the most meaningful information and sometimes the most helpful information. No place I think is that more true in the Bible than in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, if you really want to hear the story... You've got to look closely. You've got to look in the gaps. You've got to look in some of the missing parts. You have to pay attention to what might be happening behind the story. Because I think a much bigger story is being told here than the one that's just obvious on the surface of the page. The book of Esther, at very least, is an unusual book. It's one of only two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. It's one of the last books that was written in the Old Testament. For the first seven centuries of the Christian church, we don't know of any commentary that was written on it. Um, For some reason, it's a book that seemed to be kind of ignored. As a matter of fact, uh, John Calvin, who was a prolific writer and speaker, didn't include it in any of his commentary series. Uh, We don't have any record that he ever preached a sermon on it. Seemed to skip over it. 
Martin Luther takes it a step further. Martin Luther said he's an enemy of the book of Esther. He wished it had never been written. And he said he wished it had never been written because it included what he called too many heathen unnaturalities, whatever that means. There were just too many of them in there. So why? Why is this such a difficult book? Why have people avoided it? Before we take a look at that, I want to remind you just about the story, just the basics of the story. I was going to summarize it for you, but I was afraid I'd put you all to sleep. So I found a video of someone who's a much, much better storyteller than I, even includes some uh, pictures for you. And I thought it's one that the kids who are here with us in summer might enjoy, but the adults too. So this is a six-and-a-half-minute telling of the story of Esther. I thought she did a great job of telling that story, but she did sanitize the story a little bit, probably because it's meant for kids as well as adults. Um, and, and I want to emphasize a few points that maybe got skipped over. For instance, when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, Cyrus was the king of Persia. And as soon as he conquered them, he made a decree. And his decree was that many of the people in the empire that the Babylonians controlled, that he now controlled, could return to their homelands and they could rebuild their cities. And one of those groups that was allowed to do that was the Jews. They were allowed to return to Jerusalem and they were allowed to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And those are the stories that we read in Nehemiah and Ezra, those events. Well, that all occurred about 70 years before these events in the story of Esther. And what's interesting in the story of Esther, you don't hear anything about Jerusalem. You don't hear anything about the temple. You don't hear anything about thoughts about returning to Jerusalem. It's almost as if none of that was taking place or none of that had happened. She mentions the, the week-long party that um, Xerxes throws for everybody, this lavish party where he just opens the doors and has flowing food and wine for everybody and anybody can attend a big drunken party. Well, actually, that party went on for six months before that. There was another party. So he had a six-month party in which he invited all the big shots, the officials throughout his vast empire, to come to his city and to celebrate for six months. So it was six months of free-flowing wine and food. And then this week where he opened the doors to everybody, and everybody was invited into it. And we're told in Scripture that he did that because he wanted to put his wealth on display and his power on display. He wanted everybody to look at him and say, what a remarkable, great king. And historians believe he was probably doing this because he wanted to gain support for his war against the Greeks. He wanted everybody to say, well, you're such a great king. Of course we want to be on your side. But nonetheless, his point was, look at me. Look how powerful and how great I was. And he seemed to believe he was because in an inscription that archaeologists unearthed, they found these words that he had spoken about himself. I am Xerxes, the great king the only king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. He thought well of himself, and he was a powerful man. May have been the most powerful man in the world at that time. May, in fact, may be one of the most powerful men that's ever lived on the face of the earth because he controlled such a vast empire and so many people and so much wealth. And what's interesting then in the story of Esther is such focus is put on him and his power and his wealth And then never in the story of Esther does the name of God appear. Never a mention of God. One of only two books in the Bible where that's true, the other, the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs, there's some dispute. Maybe the name of God appears once. But in the book of Esther, no dispute. God never, names never mentioned, never shows up. No mention of them at all. Matter of fact, there's no mention of prayer in the book. Uh, At one point, Esther does 
tell Mordecai that before she makes this decision to go to Xerxes, she wants everyone to be fasting. So maybe we can assume prayer, of course, is part of that fasting, but never directly mentioned in any way. There's no prophecies, no visions, no miracles, no angels appear anywhere in this book. No quoting of other scriptures, no mentions of priests or the sacrificial system. No apparent concern for the law of God. When Esther goes to be part of this harem, you know, it's very possible when Esther went to be part of this harem, um, it says that she hid her, her Jewish identity. So it's, it's likely, again, we're just not told the details, but it's likely that to do so, she had to violate dietary laws. She may have had to violate Sabbath laws because she had to hide who she was. So this isn't really a Daniel story. A Daniel story where earlier, before the Babylonian king, he publicly is going to honor the laws of God, even if it means putting his life at risk. This really isn't that kind of story. Nothing's pointing to the fact that she did that in any way. Um, She mentions a beauty contest taking place. And I do think probably that it was a great honor for women in that empire to be chosen, possibly to be the next queen. So probably they wanted to be chosen. But again, they really had no choice if they didn't want to be. If they were chosen, they were chosen, and they were going to come be a part of the king's harem. And they went through 12 months. It was a, it was a lavish, luxurious existence. For 12 months, they are prepared for one night with the king. For 12 months. But again, we skim over pretty quickly what this beauty contest really was about. It's about one night sleeping with the king and deciding if he wants you to be his queen. This Gentile man... She's going to be in the bed of this Gentile man, this man who doesn't worship God in any way, doesn't honor God in any way, who thinks he's the great power and hopes that she gets chosen to be the next queen. That's what the story's about. And and afterwards, after this one night with the king, they would be returned to what's called the harem of concubines. And again, luxurious existence, everything they want probably provided for them, but also a life of seclusion. They could never leave, never return to family, could never marry, simply live here amongst these other women, waiting for maybe that one day that the king remembers their name and calls them up again. This is the life now. These are the choices they have. And when Esther goes to uh, Xerxes and goes to Xerxes to ask this question, you know, it's easy if if we're making up the Sunday school flannel graph to make the great heroine, you know, Esther, who goes to Xerxes and risks her life, But we're really not too sure what our motives were going in there. In fact, it's interesting in this book, you know, the page is never really pulled back and we get to see underneath what the motives are, why they're making the choices they're making. Matter of fact, it's it's almost strangely absent, any mention of motives of any kind. But here is what we know Mordecai said to her in Esther chapter 4 as he was encouraging her to make this decision. He said, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal royal position for such a time as this. So her cousin Mordecai seems to be saying, uh, if you think you're going to get out of this, you're just going to skim by because you're queen and you're not going to get killed with the rest of us. I'm telling you to go talk to the king because if you don't, God's going to rescue the rest of us. I believe that. But you know what? You and your family will die because you didn't cooperate with them. So you better go. Kind of putting screws to her. Kind of saying this this better happen. But then he also encourages her to say, and maybe, maybe every part of your story has led up to this moment. Maybe in some ways God has been 
preparing you for this moment and placing you in this place so you actually get to be a part of his story of rescue. So we're not sure which motive drove her, what was kind of behind it. Fear, desire to serve God. We're just never really told what was going on there. Matter of fact, even when Mordecai um, refuses to bow to Haman and because of that, all the Jews are to be annihilated, um, there, there doesn't seem to be any reason in Scripture that he couldn't have bowed to this foreign authority. It seemed to be a violation of the law to do so. Matter of fact, it seems it was common for Jews to bow to these foreign authorities that ruled over them. Why did Mordecai not do it? Maybe he thought it was some way of honoring God, but it's very possible it was simply because Haman was a descendant of Agag. Agag was the, the king of the Amalekites, sworn enemies of the Jews and enemy of God. And the Jews hated them. The Amalekites hated the Jews. And maybe it's just kind of stubborn pride. Maybe he really just didn't want to bow um, to this man. And because of it, all the, the lives of all the Jews are put at risk. We don't know. We really don't know the motives. We don't understand. It's just as possible the motives had nothing to do with godliness. They were just kind of human motives and human acts that were taking place in this story. So again, not really necessarily the good stuff of a Sunday school lesson or a flannel graph presentation, you know, when you really look at the story. We're not sure what to do with the story. I think it's why people like Martin Luther say, I wish this story just wasn't ever in there. Because I look at this story and I see women who seem in some ways to be being degraded to accomplish these purposes. I see a power-hungry king who seems to be moving unchecked, getting his way. Moral laws seem to be kind of being set aside. Where's God in this story? He almost seems absent in this. If this isn't a story about God, why, why is it even in there? Why even pay attention to it? Well, I'm always careful to do something like this, to disagree with a man like Martin Luther but I humbly would disagree with him. I do think God's in this story. I do think this is a story where, really, I think God's the main character in this story. But I think you've got to look in the gaps. You've got to look in the silences. You have to look behind the story in some ways if you want to see him. This is a story that it just so happens that Queen Vashti decides that she is not going to appear before the most powerful man in the world. And she is set aside as queen and opens the door to a new one. And this is a story where it just so happens that Esther, this Jewish girl, one of the lowest classes in this empire, is chosen to be the next queen among the hundreds or even thousands of women. This is a story where it just so happens that when some of Xerxes' guards are plotting his death, a very dangerous thing, that they talk about it with an earshot of Mordecai. And Mordecai is then able to thwart their plans. This is a story where it just so happens. When King Xerxes can't fall asleep one night, he asks for the reading of his book of records, which tells you something about his arrogance. He wants to read his story to go to sleep. And probably a good thing to read if you want to go to sleep. So he wants to read the book of records. But it just so happens that that book falls open to the story of Mordecai. And he reads that story. And it just so happens that the next day, Haman is going to come to the king and is going to ask for Mordecai's head. But before he does so, it just so happens that the king, without really telling him who he's talking about, says, I want to honor someone who did a great thing for me. How should I honor him? And it just so happens that Haman suggests that you do that, you honor him in a very, very public way that lets everyone know that he has your support, thinking that he's talking about himself. And it just so happens that when he does that, before Esther has even asked the king to save her people, 
Now, if the king says, let's annihilate the Jews, not only am I going to kill the queen who I love, but I'm also going to kill this man who I just yesterday publicly honored and stood before everybody. Just so happens that the next day, when Haman is, is found to be the one who's behind all this, and the king wants to execute judgment against him, that Haman's erected his own gallows, and the king can put him to death on his own gallows. Just so happens that all those things fell into place in just the right way that led to this, led to this conclusion. It's been said a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. I think this is one of those stories. A lot of coincidences line up just right to tell the story of the rescue of God's people. This is a story that many say, and I agree, is a story that points us to the providence of God. Um, when we talk about the providence of God, we talk about the fact that God is, God is actively involved in this world, in his creation, and even in the choices of men and women. Um, some of those things that we may call a chance, a coincidence, a moment of luck, that actually, some way, God is still involved in those things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. And theologians often talk about those two things when they talk about providence. They talk about preserving. And by preserving, they mean, how is God involved in sustaining those things he created, those people and his creation? How does he do that? And they say he didn't just create and just kind of set things in motion and take his hands off and see what happens that God actively stays involved, that everything that is, everything that moves, everything that survives, it's still because of God, because he actively sustains. The writer of Hebrews says this, that he continues to sustain all things by his powerful word. But the real kind of difficulty comes in that second part, in the governing part. How is God actually involved in governing his creation, moving his creation in such a way that the story he wants to be told is told? that we come to the end of the story that's been promised and he fulfills his promise. Even when in the midst of that story, there are people making evil choices and foolish choices, how does God move those things in such a way that that still takes place? And theologians often talk about this thing when they talk about governing called divine concurrence is maybe how this all happens, divine concurrence. By divine concurrence, they mean this, the action by which God works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. So they're saying God's governing happens by he accomplishes his will. He does something that his will will be accomplished. And somehow he incorporates human wills into that. They're a part of that accomplishing and that movement and that story he's telling. But somehow he does that in such a way that he doesn't violate the fact that they are choosing beings and responsible for their choices. That's a mystery. Lots of discussion goes on around that. It's difficult to understand. Old Testament scholar Karen Job says this way. The Bible presents divine concurrence as operating in such a way as to leave human beings responsible for evil, yet to show God using the effect of their evil for his good purposes. A couple of biblical examples of that would be where, where Joseph, Scripture tells us, his brothers sell him into slavery. And Scripture tells us that they intended it for evil. They had evil purposes in what they chose to do. In that very same act, that very same event, God intended for good. 
Somehow it was an evil act and a good act all happened at the same time. It accomplished his good purposes and yet evil intent. Acts 2, Peter talks about the fact that that the crucifixion of Jesus rests squarely on the shoulders of those who crucified him. It was an evil act. It was a sinful act that they chose to commit. And yet in the same passage, Peter affirms the fact that this was all according to God's foreordained plan. Somehow, this wrong, evil, sinful act didn't slow down, didn't get in the way, was no obstacle whatsoever for God accomplishing his purpose. Matter of fact, he didn't have to erase it, eliminate it in any way to still move the story where he wants it to go. How those work together, it's a great mystery. And scripture often doesn't answer those questions. So when you come to the book of Esther, you could easily ask questions. We got to the end of the story, good end of the story, but man, some of the ways we got there, where's God in that? Some of the ways we got there, you know, women seem to be taken from their homes just to satisfy these sexual desires of this power-hungry king. How's that part of this story? Why, why let that in the story? Where is God in this thing? I like the answer of theologian Michael Horton because it kind of matches the best answer I can come up with. If Scripture holds humans responsible for their own actions and yet affirms God's sovereignty, so too must we. These truths are never resolved in Scripture, but held together, acknowledging their mystery. It really is beyond our understanding. I don't fully understand it. As I read others, I don't think we fully understand it, how God does that. Somehow we are responsible for our sinful choices. Evil rests on the shoulders of those who choose to commit the evil. And yet it never slows God down a bit. God somehow will even incorporate the effects of that into a good story that he's going to tell. He is a remarkable, redemptive God. I I tell people often when I'm listening to their story, I'm tempted sometimes when I listen to their story to go back and say, I'd like to erase that out of your story if I could. Matter of fact, to say I want it in your story would be perverted. It would be horrible because often there are painful, ugly moments in their story. But at the same time, I'm left saying, but but I like who I'm sitting with. I I like you. (laughs) I like somehow where life has brought you and where the events in your life have brought you. So there's another part of me, I don't want to erase anything because I don't want to erase you. And I don't know who you are apart from that story. It reminds me how God is a God who doesn't have to erase anything. He's a God who redeems. He's a God who takes even what was meant for evil and he can still accomplish his good purpose out of it. Nothing slows him down. What a remarkable God we serve. So what I love in this story is that sometimes when we think evil's in charge or godless people are in charge and that's who's running the story, look at Xerxes and Haman. The two in this story who it looks like, these are the people with power. Everybody has to bow to them. Everybody serves them. I mean, remarkable power like maybe never seen again in the existence of mankind. Remarkable power. Yet the story, if you look closely, right underneath their nose, who's really in control? Who's really moving these events towards the, towards the promised conclusion? It's God. He's in there. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to show up miraculous ways. doesn't need an audible word. Nobody even has to know what he's doing. He's in control, and things move where he wants them to move. So three points I want to drive home, three points of application today, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. Here are the three. It's easy to look around our world and feel like we are fighting a losing battle sometimes. 
Sometimes when you listen to the news, sometimes you read the paper, sometimes when you just look around your own home, situations in your marriage or with your kids and your family and extended family. Sometimes when you look around at work, it's easy to feel like we are fighting a losing battle. Evil is going to win. Godlessness is going to win. Let's just kind of curl up and cocoon and keep ourselves safe and hope we make it to the end. Or let's rant and rave and let's prove we have a right and defend ourselves and grab power because there's a real threat. I think Esther reminds us that evil's not winning. Even though it may look like it at times, even though it may do real destruction and cause great pain, ultimately evil will not win. The gates of hell will not prevail against God. This is a story where God wins, where God ultimately is in control, and God will tell a good story, and a good story of rescue for his people. That's the story that's being told. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to huddle up. We don't even have to prove all the time that we're right. Sometimes we just need to sit back and join what God is doing and look for it. Secondly, I'd say Esther reminds us that God will accomplish his good purposes with or without our cooperation or our pure motives. God can accomplish what he wants to accomplish and tell his good story, even if we don't know about it, even if sometimes our motives aren't always pure or we're not strong enough or we don't always do the right thing, even though sometimes we're scared and we back out, God can still accomplish his good purpose. But the story of Esther also reminds us that what a remarkable privilege it is when God pulls back the curtain a little and says, here's how you get to step in and join me. Because for Esther, I love what Mordecai says. Maybe every moment has worked together. You didn't know they were about this. You didn't see God's hand in all this and didn't know it was there. But maybe every moment has worked together to prepare you for this moment where you now have an opportunity to jump in and be an important part of the good story God is telling. God would have told his good story, as Mordecai said, whether Esther made that choice or not. God's not limited by our choices. We're not the center of the story. And sometimes we look around our world and it feels like it's all on our shoulders. We are the center of the story. But I would say the story of of Esther reminds us we're not. The hope doesn't lie in me or in you. The hope lies in our good God. But what a remarkable blessing it is when we see his movement and we choose to join it. What a gift it is for us. Third, God can work just as powerfully through the ordinary as through the miraculous. I think the story of Esther reminds us. As, as I've heard that, that theme come up in several of these studies we've had this summer on characters of the Bible, that God works just as well through ordinary human choices and human acts, just as well through those things as he does through the extraordinary and the miraculous. Again, to quote Michael Horton, he says, Why do we associate God's activity in our lives with the spectacular disappearance of a medically documented tumor, but are not as ready to acknowledge the same in its reduction over time through radiation or surgery? Is God not as much the healer when a wound recovers gradually through various human means as when he miraculously intervenes? God sometimes works in the miraculous He steps outside of the ordinary, outside of human choices and human acts, and he directly makes something happen. And and what a blessing it is when we get to see those moments, when we're reminded of God's power and God's presence and God's activity in 
in an extraordinary way. But it seems when you look at Scripture, and I think Esther is one of those places that helps us remember this, the most common way God acts is through those very human choices and those human acts, sometimes good, sometimes bad. He still accomplishes his will. He works through things that sometimes look like that was a human decision and a human act. One author said, you know, we rightly can thank the baker and thank God for our daily bread. Because the baker had the skills and the resources and what was needed to bake that bread. And we ought to thank them for it. And we also ought to thank God because he gave them those skills and provided those resources and the wheat that they were able to turn into that bread. God is in every part of it, too. Our providential God who governs all things and sustains all things is in it. And we can thank him, too. Many of you, I say this because I think for many of you and for me often, the story of Esther is kind of our story. It's a story where many of us would say, I've never seen a miracle. I've never heard an audible voice from God. I've not been miraculously healed at some point in my life. I've never had some vision in the middle of the night that I knew came from God. Many of you may even say, I'm not even sure that I could, I could point to a, an event where that was clearly an answer to one of my prayers. I still know. Where you wonder, is God even in my life? Does he show up? Is he even there? But sometimes it's because we're always looking for the miraculous to find him. Esther reminds us God was just as much there in what looks like coincidence, what looks like sometimes human movement. The movement of God is there too if you look closely. Again, I mentioned one of the privileges I have as a pastoral counselor is many times people honor me with letting me hear important stories in their lives. And many times when people are telling me those stories, they are stories of just devastating hurt and abuse and suffering. Sometimes they're stories of great loss or stories of devastating sin. And one of the things that often strikes me, and honestly, this is something I think about many times as I'm sitting in my office listening to people's stories. I'll hear those stories and and I'll be thinking to myself, oh, I hate that story because that is a story that seems like evil is winning in some remarkable ways. That's a story where you want to go, oh, evil won that battle. I hate that. But then I'll look at the person sitting in front of me and I'll think to myself, this isn't a story of evil winning. This person sitting in front of me, I see the fruits of the spirit in their life. I see a person who loves God and wants to follow God. This is a person who's talking to me, a pastoral counselor, because they believe the answers they long for somehow reside with God and they're hoping I can guide them there. How does this person, this story, fit together with those events? Why did evil not win there? Because evil seems like the dominant one that that won the biggest battles. So why don't I see that over here? Maybe I see some remnants of it, but clearly evil wasn't the victor here. Why? And I find in those moments, many times my job changes. Instead of being a counselor, I think I in some ways become a detective. My job becomes to sit with people and with them walk through their story and look for where are the fingerprints of God in this story. This may look like a story that was a story about evil and a story about human actions and a story where God was absent. But let's look more closely at it. Let's walk through it again. Do we see the fingerprints of God? And I would say always, when we look closely, we find the fingerprints of God all over it. Sometimes quiet, sometimes unassuming, sometimes in ways that were hard to notice at the time. 
But when we start from the end of the story and we start looking back, and that's what Esther invites us to do, right? To see the conclusion and say, huh, now what did those events mean? Now where was God in those events that it was easy to pass over and think he wasn't there? Because at the end of the story, we put on these glasses and we now look back with kind of new insight and new hope. And we look and say, you know what? In some of those gaps and in some of those missing parts and somewhere behind that, I think God was there. I think he was always there. The reason I think that's important, the reason I'm blessed by that and I think others are often blessed by that, is because when we see that God was always there, even in the midst of ugly and hard and difficult and sometimes when we felt like we were alone, and we can look back now with the benefit of seeing further down the road, and we see God was there all along, we walk into the present differently. Because right now I'm not sure where you are, God, sometimes. Right now I'm not sure that in the midst of these events you could be present and you could be active and you could be preserving and governing. I'm not sure that could be going on right now. But I thought that back then. And now I can look at the present in a different way. And now I can hope for the future in a different way. I think the story of Esther invites us to do that, to be good story detectives, to look at our stories and look for the fingerprints of God, to listen to the stories of others and look for the fingerprints of God, and then to testify out loud, to tell people where we've seen him where we believe he's there and where he's acting. Sometimes through coincidence, where he's chosen to remain anonymous. But I believe he was there. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure there's people sitting here today who are going through things, struggling with things that make them ask, are you there? God, they look around in their life, they look inside sometimes and say, I'm not sure if I'm... Uh, if I'm with you, Father, if I stand here alone. I pray, Father, you'd give them eyes to see. You'd bring people in their life who'd be good story detectives with them. I pray, Father, that uh, you would reveal yourself, whether it be through the ordinary or through the miraculous, that you remind us again and again, and we thank you for these stories of Scripture that do just that, that you'd remind us again and again that you are here and that you are powerful, that you are a good God who loves his people, and is telling a story of rescue for his people. And we thank you for that. In your blessed name, amen.